This is Witness Conference 2014 with Jeff Fuelden. His topic is Witnessing to Reach the World. At the beginning of the Second World War, the tiny 350-square island of Guam was controlled by the United States. Then, toward the beginning of the war, Japan took it from the United States, and then, toward the end of the war, eventually, America got it back again. And for a number of months, they were rounding up Japanese soldiers. And in 1960, which was 15 years after the end of the Second World War, a Grumanian was out in the bush and he thought he saw two Japanese soldiers. And he thought to himself, this is impossible. The war's been over for 15 years. There wouldn't be Japanese soldiers still on the tiny island of Guam. But he was sufficiently convinced that he had seen a Japanese soldier, so... He reported it to the authorities, and they believed him enough to send out a search party. And they found, after some days of searching, they found two Japanese soldiers. They'd been hiding down underneath in the earth. When I was in Guam, I went down and had a look at where they'd been hiding. They had been living like animals for the last 15 years. And uh, when they brought them in, of course, they, they still had their old uniform on. And you can imagine what it looked like after 15 years. And their feet and their legs were ulcerated and so forth. And they brought them in and they said, guys, the war is over. We're friends now. They didn't believe it because they had been told that in war, you never believe the enemy. They'll try to brainwash you, you see. So they were very resistant against the idea that the war was over. So they found in more questioning that one of the guys had a sister in Tokyo. Now, of course, nobody knew whether she was still alive, but uh, they contacted the authorities in Tokyo and they told them they'd found these two Japanese soldiers and one had a sister. Would they try to find her? Well, eventually they turned her up and they got her on the telephone and they said, look, we have found your brother. Now, she was delighted because she had presumed, not hearing from him for 15 years, that he was dead in the war. So she was over the moon to think that uh, he was still alive. So they asked her to tell her brother that the war was over and we were all friends now. Well, she tried her best, but he wouldn't believe her either. So finally, what they did is they put them on an aeroplane and they flew them back to Tokyo. And as the aeroplane was banking around, of course, they could look out the window and they saw Tokyo in 1945, or 1960, I should say. They remembered it from about 1939. So you can imagine the changes that have taken place in Tokyo over those years. They couldn't believe what they were seeing when they looked out the window. Well, the plane pulled up and, of course, they were re reunited with their family because they'd been told that they were coming and there was a very, very happy reunion. I've often thought about that story because that is a true story. I have pictures of the very guy himself. You can look it up if you uh, want to check the... Uh, you look up the story from Guam and you'll get pictures of those fellows. I have a picture of him getting his first haircut after 15 years. And um, it's a true story, as I said. Now, 
what amazes me is that here he was back in Tokyo, the two of them, back in Tokyo, walking around the streets, having met their family. I can just imagine the regrets that they must have had in their hearts when they realized they could have been living back here in luxury and in uh, ease, and here they were hiding down under the earth in this hole, just like an animal underneath the earth for all of those years. And I have thought that this is an illustration of humankind because most people today in our world, and in our country in particular, Do not know that Jesus has come and peace has been declared between God and man. The war is over. And they certainly don't know that God has a message, a special message in these last days, and that message is to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And the purpose of that message is to get people ready for the return of Jesus. And I want you to open your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, to Revelation chapter 14. And I want to read you that message because it is very, very special. In fact, it is the heartbeat of Revelation. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. The expansion and the uh, understanding of this message, it's almost in the center of the book. And everything else in Revelation is is supporting these three messages. Let's have a look at them. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark, on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Then in verse 12 it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now I often have people say to me, Wow, whatever is that all about? One of the amazing things about the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation is Jesus' own book. In fact, if you go back to the very first uh, chapter and the first verse of Revelation, it tells us here that Revelation, it's of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me just read it to you in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says here, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, if there's one book that Christians ought to love and one book that we ought to be clear about, it's the book of Revelation. Isn't that right? 
I heard a lady say to me the other day, so much emphasis on revelation. What about Jesus? Well, I don't know how long it is since she read the book of Revelation, but that's what Revelation is about, isn't it? It's about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. And if there's one book in the Bible that you and I ought to be very, very familiar with, it's this book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about the work of Jesus, very important, but the book of Revelation's his own book. That's why we ought to be high on the book of Revelation, if I can use a colloquialism. That's why we ought to be studying the book of Revelation. That's why the book of Revelation ought to be our passion. Because it is dealing with the uh, gospel in the setting of the last days. And if you read the rest of the first one there, it says, not only would God show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and, what's the next word there? In my version, it says, signify. Does it say that in yours? Has anyone got a version that's different to that? Signified? What does the word signify mean? If something is signified, if you break that word up, the first part of the word is what? Sign. It's given in signs and symbols. The very first Chapter, the very first chapter, the very first verse tells us that the book of Revelation is written differently to other books in the Bible. In fact, it's written in code language for a very special reason. There's a, the, I've had people say to me, why isn't the book of Revelation just written like the rest of the Bible? There's a very good reason that God has written the book of Revelation like he has. Because it is, it is code language to illustrate. John the Revelator, you'll remember, wrote the book of Revelation when he was where? On the island of Patmos. He had been banished, you'll remember, to Patmos because the Roman Empire used Patmos as the Alcatraz of the ancient world. It was the most secure prison in the Roman world. Nobody escaped from Patmos. And you can understand why. It's out in the middle of the sea. And John was considered to be very troublesome in what he was saying. So they banished him over to this uh, little island. But the trouble was that God gave him a vision that he wanted to be spread around on the outside. Now, you know, if you're in a strict high security prison and you want something on the outside, what's going to happen to it if it ever does get on the outside? What will happen before it gets on the outside? It's going to be checked on, isn't it, and censored. Isn't that right? Yes. Now, can you imagine if the Roman soldiers picked up the book of Revelation, as John had written it, because remember, it's addressed to the seven churches of Asia. They were outside Patmos. So here, John has written it down in prison, and he has to get the, vi the vision outside. So the uh, Roman soldiers are going to read it. They're going to censor it. Now, can you imagine what would have happened if the Roman soldiers had realized that the book of Revelation foretold the doom of the Roman Empire? What do you think would have happened to the book of Revelation? It would have been destroyed, of course. And not only would the Revelation have been destroyed, but John would have been killed. 
because he would be guilty of treason. So God kept it from the Roman soldiers and when they read it, they couldn't make head nor tail of it and uh, so they said, I'll just let the thing through. It's nothing very serious and they let it out. And God purposely wrote the revelation like he did. Secondly, the second reason that it's written like this is because if the church of the Middle Ages had realized that the book of Revelation foretold its doom as it does, instead of preserving the book of Revelation, what would they have done? They would have destroyed it too. And they couldn't understand it any more than the Roman soldiers could understand it. And so they preserved it and looked after it so that we can have it today. And so there's a very good reason that God has written this book in signs and symbols or in code language. And while the code language uh, has been written, God has given to us the key to unlocking that code. And that code is in the rest of the Bible. Sometimes it's even in the same book, the book of Revelation. But more often than not, the code is found in other places of the Bible. Unless a person is serious about the study of the Bible, they will never be able to work it out. And that's why the vast majority of people today, when it comes to uh, the book of Revelation, either never read it, they're not interested in it, and uh, it's, it's a completely closed book to them. The vast majority of people that come along to meetings that I'm running, I find, have no idea about the book of Revelation whatsoever. They've hardly ever read it. And as I said, by uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture and allowing the Bible to be its own interpreter, then Revelation is not difficult to understand. You see, when Jesus came the first time to this world, God had his messenger to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus the first time. In these last days, when God has a message which is going to the every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, we notice that God has three messages. Let's go back to Malachi chapter uh, 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter... Let's just find it there. Malachi... Just before Matthew, and uh, we find Malachi, the uh, third chapter and verse 1. Malachi, the third chapter and verse 1. And it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way, what? Before me. Here was a prediction made over 400 years before Christ was born, that God was going to send my messenger. You'll notice in your Bible that the my will be in capital letters and messenger in small letters. The my is representing God. He's the one that's speaking, but he's going to send his messenger in a small m and he will prepare the way before me in capital letters. So here was a prediction. Who was that messenger that God raised up to prepare the coming of Jesus the first time? Well, I'm sure you all know it, but let me just give you the evidence. Come over to the book of uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, 
and verse 10. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 10. The 11th chapter of Matthew and verse 10 where it says, Assuredly, I say to you among those born of women, there hath not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now, if you go back to verse 10, it quotes from where we just read. Have a look at verse 10. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger. And... Who will prepare your way before you? That's an exact quote from where? From Malachi. We've just read that in Malachi. And Jesus picks up that statement and he applies it to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. That's why it says that the purpose of John the Baptist was like a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist was God's messenger to prepare the world that then was, particularly Palestine or Israel, for the coming of Jesus the first time. Now, in these last days, when God has a message which is going not just to one nation, Palestine, but this message is going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, he has three. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 14, and I just want to have a look closely at this message because this message is very, very important. In fact, I'm going to say that the giving of this message is the most important thing that's going on in the world today. The most important And Revelation 14, verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This is a worldwide message. This is not something which is just done in the backyard somewhere. This is not something which is uh, some little small movement. This is a worldwide movement. And it's the everlasting gospel, the gospel that has always been true. Only it's given in the setting of the last days. It is the last message that goes to a world. How do I know that? Because if you go down to verse 13, we'll notice that after the giving of these three messages, John sees these three angels flying in mid-heaven Then the very next thing that he sees in verse 13, he says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. In other words, as as John sees these three messages being taken to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, the very next event he sees in point of chronology is the coming of the Son of Man with a sickle in his hand, ready to reap the harvest of the earth. 
And the book of Matthew in the 13th chapter tells us that the harvest of the earth represents the end of the world. In other words, these three messages are the last message that goes to the world before Jesus returns. That's why I said a few moments ago, this is the most important thing that's going on in the world today. Nothing can eclipse this message. The giving of this message, it is the last. Because as soon as these three messages come, John saw in point of chronology the return of Jesus with the sickle in his hand. And by the way, every Bible uh, writer back at that time, every Bible student back in the beginning of, uh, of the Christian era understood clearly the sickle because even today there are still many countries in the world that cut their lawn with a sickle. They can't afford a Victor lawnmower, but you'll find them down on their knees cutting their grass with a sickle because the sickle was the the implement that was used back in the ancient world to reap their harvests. And so when the Bible uses the same picture, the same symbolism, it's very clear that this is referring to the end of the world when the reaping of the harvest takes place and the division takes place between the wheat and the tares, the, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus is coming. That's why I can be so certain that these three messages are the last message that goes to a world. And as soon as these three messages do go to the world, then Jesus returns. Let's just go back to verse 6 again and notice it. John writes, Then I saw another angel. By the way, I think that if John was alive today under the symbolism of three angels... You imagine he's living 2,000 years ago. How does he picture a message going all around the world? Well, poor old John, the best that he could think of to be able to do that would be an angel because he'd never heard of satellites. He'd never heard of um, the internet. He'd never heard of iPads. Maybe fortunately. But, but... He understood that an angel would be able to fly through mid-heaven. Maybe if John was writing today, he would call, instead of three angels' messages, we might have three satellite messages, using our common terminology today. But that was the best that John could come up with, because this angel represents a message flying through mid-heaven, given to every person that lives on the earth. And you'll notice it's the everlasting gospel. This is not some newfangled idea. It's the same gospel that was true back in the beginning of time. It was true in Noah's day. It was true in Moses' day. It was true in, uh, Abraham, in uh, Isaiah's day. It was true in Jeremiah's day. It was true in Jesus' day. It was true in, uh, in the Middle Ages. And it's still true today. It is the everlasting gospel because the gospel has never been changed. The only difference is that it's given in the setting of the last days. That is, the gospel is going to be given with the emphasis that is relevant for the last days. Hence, as we begin to read these three messages, we find the emphases that need to be given in, give, in preaching the everlasting gospel. These three messages are the 
the message, that is the, the teaching that needs to be emphasized as part of the everlasting gospel. The, the messages that are given here in Revelation 14 are not apart from the gospel. They are the gospel. Let's notice the first one. The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The judgment message is part of the everlasting gospel. Listen, if you were rotting in jail and you knew you were innocent, the judge had already told you that when the court sits, you are going to be exonerated and shown to be not guilty, would it be good news for you in jail to hear that very soon you are going to appear in court? Would that be good news or bad news? It would be the best news that you could hear, isn't that right? And that's why all through the Bible, the teaching of the judgment is such good news because we carry into the judgment our own acquittal. We have already been told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why the judgment is such good news. No matter what Bible writer talks about the judgment, he'll always talk about it as far as good news for God's people. We have nothing to fear for the judgment because I'm carrying into the judgment my own acquittal. And so the first part of this message is to emphasize to the world the hour of God's judgment has come. At last, wrongs are going to be righted. At last, truth is going to prevail and, and it's been on the scaffold and error has been on the throne for so long, but at last, wrong is going to be shown for being wrong and right is going to be elevated and finally put on the throne that's why the judgment is such good news and part of the message that God has for these last days is for you and for me to be teaching people about the hour of God's judgment has come and that's why the devil today is attacking the judgment and if you know anything about those who want to attack the Adventist message they always attack it in this area and unfortunately, many of us know so little about it, we become easy victims to it because we've never studied it. And so the first emphasis in this message to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people is the hour of God's judgment has come. And then it says, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water, which is an exact quote from the fourth commandment. And today, if you want to uh, remain popular, you will not teach a seven-day creation. Because if you teach and believe a seven-day creation, you're almost looked upon as an ignoramus today. Isn't that right? Surely you don't believe that nonsense. Because evolution has made such inroads into our into our thinking and our education system today. All of those of you who not only at high school, but into university know that that's what's being pushed all the time. And it takes someone who is their, their uh, heart as is saturated in God's word to stay firm on this matter. And part of the message in the last days is to emphasize the fact that God is the creator. 
You know, one of the things that uh, the reason the devil hates the book of Revelation is because Revelation exposes the devil's counterfeit. In fact, if you come over to the 16th chapter of Revelation, we find that the devil has three messages going to the whole world. Did you know that? Just as God has three messages going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, did you know that the devil has three messages going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? Let me read it to you. Revelation 16, and here, notice, verse 13, just to get the context. Chapter 16, verse 13, it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet there is the devil's trinity the dragon the beast and the false prophet god has three the devil has three then it says verse 14 for they are the spirits of demons or devils performing what miracles or signs you see In order to give the devil's teaching credence, what he is using is so-called signs and miracles. They are going to appear everywhere to substantiate his false teachings. And if there's one thing human beings are very adept at and very impressed by is so-called miracles. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very hard. I have talked to so many people who say to me, well, Jeff, what you teach from the Bible, I cannot fault. But, but when they say but, you know, something is going to come. But in our church, we have miracles, and I believe that God is with us with these miracles. Nothing could be more dangerous than to take that position because the devil can counterfeit every miracle that God can perform. For example, let me give you a biblical quote for that. You remember that uh, Moses went in before Pharaoh, threw his staff down on the ground, and what did Pharaoh's uh, magicians do? Threw their staves down on the ground, and they became snakes. So we, we cannot tell the difference between the right and the wrong on the basis of the miracle, because even a magician can deceive your eyes, let alone the devil who's had 6,000 years of practice. So if we're going to test a thing by the so-called miracle, we'll be deceived every time. That's why we must go to something higher than that. We've got to test them by what they teach and what they believe. And here the book of Revelation tells us that uh, the deception is going to use signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, to gather them to that battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So this is talking here about the coming of Jesus. And the message that the devil is uh, pumping out by his three agencies is going to the whole world at the same time that God's message is going out to the whole world. We are in the midst of a battle, a controversy, a war. And we are actors in that great scheme. We are not just uh, viewers, we are actors ourselves. 
and we're either standing up for God and his three messages or we are standing for the devil and his deception. Well, let's just go back to Revelation 14 because tonight I'm not talking about the counterfeit. That's another section and another time, another place. But here in Revelation chapter 14, as we read on, there's a second message. And it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wrath of her fornication. Now, whatever that's about, it doesn't sound very good. And the Bible says that Babylon has made the whole world drunk. You know, I've had drunk people come into my meetings over the years, particularly in the winter. They want to come into the meeting because it's warm and so forth. And they often come down right down to the front seat and they sit there. And of course, by the time they've been there for about an hour, they're somewhat sobered up a little. And when you you go down and have a talk to them, oh, they're never going to touch it again. They're they're sorry for what they've done. And then you go visit them the next day to see how they're getting on. They can't remember a single thing that happened. Did I go to a meeting? In other words, alcohol confuses the brain. And that's why the Bible is giving us a picture here that Babylon has made the world drunk. And unless we have the Spirit of God in our hearts, we will never be able to lead men and women to accept the truth. And that's that system of religion. Babylon represents that system of religion that began back there in the beginning in the ancient city of Babylon and has continued down through the years and is still at the basis of every false religion. Then it talks in verse 9, 10, and 11 about uh, the third message. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. This, the fact that the Bible talks here about worship indicates that the mark of the beast has something to do with religion because you don't worship Mr. Abbott, do we? And you weren't tempted to worship Miss Gillard. I don't think so. Because worship is not associated with a political being. Worship is associated with religion and with God. Get the idea? And here it says that um, um, if any man worships the beast and his image, it's religion. It's the false religion. Remember, this is part of the everlasting gospel. I meet some, uh, some church members who, who think that the preaching of this is not that important. Let me tell you something. If you think that, you are open for deception because this is the last message that Jesus gives. Remember, this message is not from me or from some other person. This is a message from Jesus. And he wants us to understand the issues Because unless we understand the issues, we will be deceived. There's nothing more certain. And then God talks about those who get the mark of the beast. And then he contrasts it in verse 12 with those who get and keep the commandments of God. And whatever the mark of the beast is, it's the very opposite to the commandments of God. If I keep the commandments of God, then I'll never get the mark of the beast. On the other hand, if I play fast and loose with the commandments, 
then I'm going to be amongst that group who get the mark of the beast because in the last days, there's only two, peop- two groups of people. Before the last days, there's three. There's the hot and the cold. And what other group is there? The lukewarm. As we get closer to the end, the lukewarm disappears. And they go one way or the other. They go into the hot camp or the cold camp. Because in the last days, there's only two groups. The hot and the cold. The sheep and the goat. The wheat and the tares. And there's something which divides us all into those two groups. And it's this message that God uh, has given to, uh, to the whole world. That's why Peter calls a message God's present truth. What do we mean by God's present truth? Well, there are truths in the Bible that are always true. For example, that this book is God's inspired word is always true, isn't it? doesn't matter what period in history. Um, that Jesus died a complete atoning death on the cross is always true. But there are some truths in the book that are only true for a particular period. For example, if I came preaching the same message that Noah preached, would that be true now? The world is going to be destroyed by a flood. Would that be true now? No, but it was true when Noah preached it, wasn't it? It was present truth then, but it's not present truth now. And the same is true if I came and preached the same message that John the Baptist preached. That's not present truth now. It was when John preached it, but it's not present truth now because Jesus has come the first time. This message is God's present truth today because this message has not been true in the past. For example, I was brought up in the uh, Presbyterian church. I don't remember ever hearing a single sermon from the book of Revelation. Not a single one, ever. And certainly I'd never heard of these three angels' messages. Never. It was a shock to me when I first began to study it. I couldn't believe that it was in the Bible and I'd never heard about it. And I have looked through the writings of men like Martin Luther and John Knox and John Calvin, and and John Wesley, wonderfully good men, outstanding individuals. But I have never, ever found an emphasis on these three messages in their writings. Does that mean that they weren't good men? Does that mean that they didn't study their Bibles? No, I don't think so in either of those reasons. Why didn't Martin Luther, for example, emphasize the three messages, do you think? Why didn't he? Why didn't Knox and Calvin talk about... In fact, John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. He said, I can't understand the book of Revelation. So he never wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. So those who follow John Calvin, the book of Revelation is closed. I notice you've got a church just up the road here, the Reformed Church. They're Calvinists. So why didn't they? Why didn't they? We all admit it's not because they weren't good men. It wasn't because they didn't study their Bible. Why didn't they preach the three messages? 
Yes, because it wasn't yet due. That's why. God didn't lay that burden upon their hearts because that message wasn't yet due. There are other essential messages that had to be laid down first before this message could be given. That's why they never taught it. That's why you can read their, their messages and listen to their sermons and you'll never find any reference to it. But I believe if they were alive today, they would be amongst the foremost preachers of these messages. Because now the time is due. It wouldn't be true in Luther's day to say that Jesus is coming soon. But now it is. And I know that this message is going to triumph. How do I know that? Just come over to Revelation chapter 15. Look at this. Revelation chapter 15. And um, verse 2 and 3. Look, Revelation 15. And it says... And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. The only people that are saved in the last days are those who get the victory over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name. It's the only message that tells people about those things is these three messages. And that's the responsibility that God has given to us as his people. That's the special message that Seventh-day Adventists have to give to the world. That's why God has raised this message up to preach these three messages. That's what makes us different to the Baptists and the Pentecostals. We have a different message And you'll never find this message in those churches. And I'm not saying that critically. I'm just telling you the truth. Only as we understand these three messages, this is the message that Jesus has given to us to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It's more than what those churches teach. That's why God is laying upon men and women today a tremendous burden in God's church to share this truth. And I want to tell you, friends, that, uh, that things are heating up. I just want to share with you one or two things to encourage you tonight that we're not following cunningly devised fables. I want to read you just a couple of headlines that have been in the papers recently. It says here, the Catholic Church recognizes Protestant baptism. It's one of the headings. Another heading, 3.5 million Protestants take a step in reconciling with Rome with many others to follow. Now, we ought to understand that this is a wake-up call. You know, if you'd been living back in the days of Noah, and I've often thought about this, and I'm sure you've thought about it too. You imagine you're living in the time of Noah, and suddenly you see all these animals walking along the road, some by sevens and some by twos. You see elephants and rhinoceroses, and you see uh, zebras and donkeys, and all these animals all walking in a file, going up, directed by nobody, seemingly, going up into the ark. If you'd been living there, wouldn't you say, what's going on? Wouldn't you say that? I would have, I'm sure. Whatever is going on? This has never happened before. Whatever is is this? 
And I would like to say today that we see the animals walking into the ark. And we ought to be saying, what's going on? This is a sign to us, like the animals were to the ancient Diluvian world. This is signs to us. Yet many of us find regular Bible study and prayer difficult. We're never late for work, but we find it very difficult to get to Sabbath school on time. And I want to tell you something, that's a breed of young people. It's one of the faults of young people. Now, you don't have many faults, but that's one of them. To be late for Sabbath school. Some folk can make, uh, find it very hard even to get to church on time. And yet you'd never be late for work because you may get the sack. But we're so casual when it comes to God. What does it matter if we're half an hour late or we're an hour late? What does it matter? We're getting ready for the coming of Jesus. Don't lie to yourself. All you do, the only person you're deceiving is yourself. I was over in Zagreb running some meetings um, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago. While I was there in midwinter in January, they passed a law in Zagreb, a, a Sunday law. That Sunday law was to close all the shops on Sunday. Now, any Adventist that hears such a law being passed, the bells begin to ring. Isn't that right? Now, there was a very good reason why they said that they were closing the shops on Sunday, and it wasn't because they said we wanted to bring the mark of the beast in. That's not the reason they gave at all. The reason they gave was that shopkeepers ought to have one day a rest a week. Now, doesn't that sound reasonable? It does sound reasonable. And you'd find it very hard to argue against that. But this is the way it's going to be brought in. It's not going to be suddenly we go to bed one night and then we wake up in the morning and the Sunday law's in. It's not going to be like that. It's gradually, gradually, gradually gets in. You may have seen this uh, headline. Catholic Church and trade unions form a holy alliance to enforce Sunday observance and the battle for Sunday. And as you read on, it says, trade unions across Europe held small protests calling for governments to force companies and shops to shut on Sunday as Catholic preachers supported the campaign from the full pulpit. Religious groups and trade unions organized under the banner of the European Sunday Alliance. And it gives you all the, uh, the reference for it, the WWW and so forth. We believe, they go on to say that all citizens of the European Union are entitled to benefit from decent working hours that as a matter of principle exclude working late evenings, nights, public holidays and Sundays, wrote the European Sunday Alliance. Only essential services should operate on Sundays. That's going on today. And gradually, gradually the frog that's being boiled, the water's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. We have a new Pope, a Jesuit Pope. The first time in history that a Jesuit has become the Pope. 
And I tell you, he's an impressive person because he is selling himself on the fact that he takes the bus. He doesn't even drive in the Popemobile. He catches the bus because he wants to be like everybody else. When they offered him a beautiful apartment in Rome, no, he said, I just want a very simple one. And people said, what a marvelous man is this. What a humble man he is. Another picture I saw in the paper was he went to a juvenile prison. And there he is washing the juvenile's uh, prisoner's feet. And he's kissing their feet. A humble man. Now I want to read you something. Listen to this. Throughout Christendom, Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. The first triumphs of the Reformation passed. Rome summoned new forces, hoping to accomplish its destruction. At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created, the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. Cut off from early ties and human interests, dead to the claims of natural affection, reason, and conscience, wholly silenced, They knew no rule, no tie, but that of their order, and no duty but to extend its power. The gospel of Christ had enabled its adherents to meet danger and endure suffering, undismayed by cold, hunger, toil, and poverty, to uphold the banner of truth in the face of the rack and the dudgeon and the stake. There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to assume. Then it says over here, when appearing as members of their order, they wore a garb of sanctity, visiting prisons and hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus who went about doing good. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. It was a fundamental principle of the order that the end justifies the means. Do you know where that comes from? Great controversy. She wrote that over 100 years ago, that that's what is the purpose of the Jesuits. Today, this Pope is doing the very thing that she has outlined there in Great Controversy. Today, we are seeing the frog is being boiled bit by bit by bit. And today, in in view of the fact that um, we are living in the hours in which we live, God is calling upon us to be faithful and to give our hearts in service for him. And as young people, God wants us to give our life in in service for him. And you have energy and, and drive and everything else that's good to give to God's service. And if there's ever an hour in earth's history when God needs you, it is today. While we have an opportunity... This has been 3ABN On The Road. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au.
comes crashing, the tide rolls out. It's an angry sea, but there is no doubt that the lighthouse will keep shining out to warn a lonely sailor. And the lightning strikes and the wind cuts cold through the sailor's bones, through the sailor's soul, till there's nothing left that he can hold except a rolling ocean. Oh, I am ready for the storm. Yes, sir, ready I. Sandra Enterman sang Ready for the Storm, and before that we heard Henry Higgins play Be Thou My Vision.